You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Mark Resimsinski and I, Niels Kastrolasten, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Mark, it is wonderful to be back with you this week. How are you doing over there? Uh, very good. You know, it's uh, starting to become fall foliage season here in New England, so we get some beautiful colors. It, uh, we've had a wet uh late summer, early fall. So it, so we haven't seen as much colors yet. It's maybe a little bit late, but I always look forward to this time of year. No, absolutely. I'm actually heading kind of in your direction next week, um, but a little bit further north. And uh, uh, I'll be interested to see uh, how, uh, how the autumn is playing out over there. Speaking of themes that are playing out, Mark, as usual, I'd love to hear before we dive into uh, all of the nitty gritty, all the great topics that you brought along that we're going to discuss and debate. Um, love to hear what's been on your radar since we last uh, speak uh, or spoke. Uh, well, there, there's sometimes different phrases stick in my mind, you know, that you see in your reading. And, and the one that has uh, really captured my attention for the last two months and has been rattling around in my brain is the comment that changes are not permanent, change is. So, and I think that we'll talk about like what's going on in the world, but I, it's uh, something to really think about that any change is not permanent, but change is. And so, so that's that's something that always has now sort of resonated in my brain when I see the news and everyone says, uh, let's get excited about the latest event or the latest uh uh, cloud that might be hanging over the economy. And I just sort of said, well, we're always going to have change. We're just going to have to learn to deal with it. Yeah, very true. I mean, you mentioned uh, a few clouds over the uh, government in the U.S. Um, I, I couldn't help thinking a little bit about, um, obviously, uh, we're standing in front of a U.S. government shutdown. That seems very likely to happen uh, by now, since I think there was a vote yesterday on Friday that rejected whatever proposal was on the table. I think that's an interesting thing that could um, have some impact on the markets. I also find it interesting, and I don't follow it that closely, so I don't know if there's any resolution here, but I do find the whole UA UAW strike, uh, so the uh, United Auto Workers strike, interesting, um, and what kind of precedence that might be uh, setting when it comes to... Um, wage and unionization and all of the things that I think might be maybe causing some challenges for investors uh, in the years to come. And then the third thing, and I don't know if you followed this one, and that is there is more talk about now, and I saw this was an article in Financial Times, maybe from today or yesterday, uh, talking about restricting leverage for hedge funds. And I'm in particular thinking of how that might impact these wonderful multi-strategy funds that I believe, need a lot of leverage to have all these teams um, of traders sitting around turning unpredictable market returns into a very uh, kind of almost a 45-degree um, return stream. So anyway, any of this uh, been on your uh, uh, radar? Well, since we uh, 
from our, our group, uh, we have an allocation from a multi-strat, you know, so, sort of. Uh, so, so did I, I step on some toes here, Mark? No, no, no. I, I follow <laughs> the multi-strat area fairly closely, and and uh, we've ha- having a lot of discussions, you know, just internally with some of my partners at uh, Theme Analytics. We've been talking about like, well, how the market has evolved for for different products, and so you used to have individual hedge funds, then you had fund of funds. And what the fund funds really did was is, is that they said like, well, I could bundle a lot of hedge funds together, but in the process of doing that, they've they actually uh, I don't want to say almost over diversified. So the uh, volatility got lower and lower as they diversified, but then uh, they gave a good risk adjusted return, but the returns you know got to a point that they weren't very attractive after you take out fees. So, so when you think about then what happened is, is that, well, the multi-strats came in and they said, well, look, we can build a better, better mousetrap. We could sort of take the idea of, you know, bundling hedge funds together. But when you find that you get all that diversification, you get lower returns. Well, what we could, but if you have a good sharp ratio, well, let's just start levering that up. And then what we could do is we could lever it up to a volatility that's consistent with what a lot of clients like, and then you also get a much higher return. So that's made it very attractive. So, so because it's not the leverage that bothers uh, should bother an investor, it's the volatility. So if let's say you have a, you know, in the case for some of an unlevered basis, you could have some of these strategies that might have a three vol with a you know six percent return. Yeah, if you had a three vol with a six percent return, that's that's a two sharp, you know, approximately. But right now, if interest rates are five and a half percent, you know, are you gonna are you gonna find that really attractive? If if let's say that you're only gonna get fifty basis points over over cash, and if it was a one and a half sharp, then you could sort of say, well, that's gonna be like five percent. That's less than than what you could get on your cash account. So what they'll do is they'll say. Look, we got a three vol. Let's let's use uh, lever it up four times. Now we get get a twelve vol. But if we start out with that six, now we're getting twenty plus percent return. So so that's what makes it very attractive. And you'll sort of say that a hedge fund structure, a multi-strat structure, could do that more efficiently than an investor. An investor couldn't really sort of say like, well, I'm going to manage a portfolio of hedge funds and now I'm going to uh, go to a prime broker. I'm going to have cross margining and then I'm going to lever uh, lever that two, three, four times. It's something that a individual investor or institution can't do or can't do easily. So so the structure makes perfect sense. Uh, Of course, as usual, is, is that if you have too much leverage, you know, leverage can kill in, in terms of a strategy. And what you find out is when you get high leverage, well, then you have to be very uh, draconian in how you treat the managers. So if they don't perform, you're going to have to kick them out of the portfolio, which is what a lot of the multi-strats do. Just while you were speaking, I looked up on the Barclay Hedge website, um, return so far for all the various hedge fund strategies and one thing I do notice is that a multi-strategy, the multi-strategy index is only up about 2%. And so it's certainly not one of the high flyers this year of all the um, of all the strategies. Now, what I'm going to say now, I have to be careful because I've only heard it from <laughs> other people. Uh, I've only heard it from other people. 
Um, you may know more about this than I do, but but I've heard it from other people this week when I was in London, and um, and I was quite shocked actually. Also, when I think about all the hoops that we have to go through um, to to get uh, allocations from institutional investors, but I was told this week that some of these uh, multi-strategy funds, and I'm sure that definitely won't uh, be for everyone, basically pass through huge amount of costs, meaning it doesn't show up as a fee for the manager. It just passes through, including significant multi-million dollar sign-on bonuses to attract the talent. Of course, there were uh, and I don't know if you would call uh, Citadel a multi-strat, and maybe it is, but of course there has been Bloomberg articles and other articles about how they were paying, you know, interns nineteen thousand dollars a month, uh, flying them business class and whatever. Um, so I have no idea. I'm, these are just sort of things I'm putting together as we speak now. But the information about these pass-through costs is something that I would say I, I can I can see. Uh, or I've heard from other sides that that this is this is happening, and if it is, I'd love to hear whether you think that is true. But if it is, I am surprised that institutional investors who must be making up the bulk of this uh, this uh, the, these allocations, including pension funds, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, who have been very hard on pressing fees down for uh, on on other strategies, including CTAs how that can even occur. And even with regulators, I mean, what on earth are you doing if you're just passing through a massive amount of expenses uh, like that? Um, but maybe it's because it's offshore strategy uh, or funds, uh, vehicles. I don't know, Mark. But um, is that something that rings a bell? A- ab- absolutely. It's an issue that uh, people have been grappling with. And, and we'll sort of say that when the model works, is that that might be a fair way to, to charge. Because when you think about it, is, is that if you had a fund of funds or if you had to look at a bundle of hedge funds, you'd have to pay an incentive fee for every one of them, right? So if you have you know, five, 10 hedge funds and all of them have an incentive fee, you're going to have to pay for that. Uh, so if you bundle them up in a multi-strat, you're still going to have to sort of pay for some of the uh, uh, those fees. So what they do is they oftentimes will give a, an incentive fee to the pods, which are the different internal managers. Well, they'll, they'll pick up some of the costs so that then they don't have to pay the costs, which usually if you bought it individually would be the management fee that you'd have to pay. So, so some of those costs are passed through. And then if you have to say, say we're paying an incentive fee to that manager, that internal team as part of our uh, multi-strat, we're going to also pass through some of that, those uh, expenses associated with the incentive fees that go to the manager. So when you think about it, if let's go back to the, if you had to do it yourself, you'd have to pay the management fee. And, and basically if you have five managers and you built a portfolio, you'd have to pay five legal, five compliance, five you know, f- you know fees for uh, for data for Bloomberg's etc. Et so so you'd still have to pay pay all of those fees. If you do a multi-strat, the same thing. They make an allocation to a uh, uh, to a, a commingled vehicle for another hedge fund. So you're going to have to pay those fees. So a multi-strat, they say, well, we still have all these fees, even though the manager is internal. 
sort of passing some of those through to the investors. So I think that that buy in itself is is not a negative. It's uh, it it's the same cost that you would pay if you had to go out and find those managers yourself. Now that being said, is this is that you know some of the largest multi-strats have been able to do that and they've been doing it very effectively and because they've posted very strong returns then i don't think that a lot of investors have complained about about that fee structure on the other hand if let's say you have a very poor year uh, where performance may be off so, so such as this year there may be some clients are going to sort of say i want to take a little closer look at those fee structure because then the fees could be much higher than what i'm actually uh, you know when i when i look at the amount of fees i pay versus the amount of return i get it might be out of out of whack relative to what i expected I will say I probably disagree a little bit uh, here, meaning I think there's a huge difference between a manager charging a one or one and a half percent because nobody gets two percent anymore. Let's face it, but uh, you know, a manager charging one or one and a half percent to a uh, to a fund, uh, and but then taking all the business risk themselves, and then having to decide how much they can afford in terms of fees for Bloomberg or whatever legal whatever to a strategy where the vehicle can just pass through the cost directly, where there's no real business risk. It's just, are we going to use the investor's money to pay for all of this stuff, whether it's 1% or 2% or 3%? Well, you know, there's no real sort of transparency, I'm sure. I think that's hugely troublesome, frankly. But I, again, you could, you could, of course, argue, say, well, it comes down to the net returns, and if they can continue to do really well, Investors should be should not care, and I have some sympathy for that. But I think there is a limit, <laughs> and I think once you start passing through fees for signing on bonuses and what have you, uh, I think there's a huge uh, red flag there. But that's just my personal. Well, there's uh, two parts to this. Is that one? If it's if it's just the the fees associated with running some of the business in these these pods, because because I think the the pod manager or the managers within the multi strat, uh, they're taking a lot of risk because usually in some at the extreme cases, many of these multi strats would be if that that they have a hard stop that if, if let's say you lose five percent or seven percent or some number. They they will just tap you on the shoulder and you're done. You're you're uh, tapped out. You lose all of your money and you you're done. Uh, there's also talent that you can't normally find because we'll sort of say that you know if an investor wants to say if I'm buying talent, hedge fund talent, I want them to focus on the strategy. I want them to focus on generating return and not focus on uh, the business. So the multi-strat structure allows the managers to sort of focus in on the business. They pass around some of the costs. They still get also economies of scale. So if you if you're buying certain types of data, if you're you know looking at infrastructure, is that even though you're passing it through some of that cost, you're getting some um, some uh, economies of scale when you do it across a large number of pods. But but really, I think they should take the the multi strategy company, whoever they are, whatever they're called, they should say, well, we're going to charge a one, one and a half, or two percent fee, and then it's up to us to make sure that we can pay for these parts. And I kind of disagree also on this thing about well, these people who come into these uh, companies as as portfolio managers that they are taking a massive risk. 
Well, they know what the risks are. And by the way, they're getting massive upside because they will get a fairly high cut of the performance and they will get much more AUM. That I have seen, you know, from people that I know personally, where they go from managing a, a few million dollars to getting a $300 million allocation or what it, it, it equates to uh, as, uh, on, on, in, in terms of risk with massive upside. So as long as they don't lose too much, uh, they can really... So let's not go... I mean, this was a little bit of a, me taking you down the, the rabbit hole, which I didn't mean to, but it'll be an interesting thing to continue to follow um, because, as I said, there are some forces now out uh, at least trying to figure out whether there's too much leverage in the system. And that might have an effect not just on multi-strat funds, but on other hedge fund strategies. Well, this is an ongoing issue. Is this it? Uh, I think that this might be more of an extreme because you have the pass-through, but whether it's a 2 and 20, 1 and 20, uh, you know, uh, 0 and X in terms of incentive fees, this is that... Uh, Ultimately, is is that the whole business is based on performance, and so you know you could sort of say like, well, if I charge, you know, one percent flat, but if I don't perform, then uh, then that that fee structure could be expensive no matter what. Well, Mark, you're <laughs> you're preaching to the choir here because you know I have very, I I'm not a big fan of flat fee. Funds. But that's another discussion right. we should have, of right. course. So, uh, like the interesting now is this is that uh, I think that you could get, uh, you know, at some level, this is that if you want an SP 500 indexed fund, okay, there are people who charge it for basically one or two basis points. So, so, so in a, in a world where you have ETFs, you have index funds that are charging, you know, just, uh, well, almost it'll say pennies. Then I will sort of say I I've been there and I'm sure you've been there. Is this is that if an index fund is up, you know, sort of double digit, and then you come in and you come in with any kind of uh, management and incentive fee structure, and you're not performing or beating, uh, you know, that benchmark, even though it may not be an appropriate benchmark, you'll have a lot of people say, "Why should I pay you anything when I can buy this index fund for nothing?" And uh, you know, the there's. Uh, there is a lot of uh, dynamics between fees and growth and the ability to sell in the hedge fund business. So I will sort of say that it, it's dynamic so that if fees get out of line relative to performance, people will vote with their feet fairly quickly. And in uh, any of these multi-strats, who don't perform and and pass through the fees, they will f feel the wrath of investors, you know, if if they don't do their job, and that applies to all hedge funds. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean that's obviously uh, that's probably the good thing about what we do is that um, investors can vote with their feet. Absolutely. Anyways, I'm sure we'll continue this uh, t uh, discussion of that topic um, another time. Now it is month end. It is quarter end, so I thought maybe we should spend a, a couple of minutes uh, if you have any thoughts on that. I mean, from my perspective, I would say the month of September was uh, a little bit, um, I wouldn't call it a massive roller coaster uh, in terms of performance, but certainly for the funds that I track the closest, um, it was a little bit of, you know, strong first half of the month and less 
strong, um, slightly negative second half of the month. And that's uh, interesting, but it's also interesting from the fact that once again, we had positive correlation between stocks and bonds and they both went down. So investors at large, again, did not really enjoy any protection from a classical um, 60-40 portfolio or whatever uh, relationship they have. So I think those were things that were interesting. And of course, I'm sure um, uh, many of the people listening to us today, Mark, will know that trend followers continue to enjoy um, you know, trends in fixed income markets where once again, uh, they uh, came under quite a lot of pressure in September um, and made kind of new highs in terms of yield uh, for um, 10, 15, maybe even 20 years. Uh, we haven't seen yield so high. There are also some pretty good opportunities in the grains where um, wheat in particular was very weak. And so uh, I think it lost, um, I think it dropped from about uh, a price of 800 a couple of months ago down to about 540. So a reasonable uh, uh, drop in a couple of months. And then, of course, um, we have the energies. Energies has kind of become this stealth bullish trend that nobody talked about much in June, but trend followers started to get uh, reversals in their uh, signals and uh, and went long. And uh, with the exception, of course, of the uh, net gas cousins, uh, Dutch net gas and the US net gas, we've had a very strong rally in energy markets, um, up 30, 35, 40% in the last few weeks. So kind of those are some of the the takeaways. I just noticed here that, uh, yeah, the last three months, uh, heating oil up 42%. So pretty strong. Then, of course, there were a little bit of a struggle in some uh, sectors, uh, equities for one, of course, um, with this uh, weaker performance uh, in equity indices uh, around the world. Trend followers, I would say, for the most part, probably still long and therefore giving up some uh, open profits. Currencies, Probably also a little bit of a challenge, uh, in particular, things like Mexican peso that's been trending really well all year, but it certainly had a little bit of a correction this month and so on and so forth. Um, the good news, though, Mark, is that my own trend barometer finished the month at 52. That is probably the highest level we've seen, I think, maybe all year. So it could be setting up for an interesting Q4, even though I don't want to jinx it, but uh Q4 could be uh, interesting, as it has been many times in our industry, as I'm sure you remember. So any any thought from your side in terms of the industry, how it's done in the last month, last quarter? Well, we started out talking about uh, uh, the fall you know, and autumn. And I think that all of a sudden now that your evenings are getting cold, uh, a little bit cooler, it's getting colder out there and at, at night. And, you know, sometimes when you, you go outside and you sort of say like, yeah, there's some standing water and you splash yourself with that, uh, that water that's been standing outside overnight, it's, it's, it's a little bit bracing. And then sort of the, you, you get that splash of cold water in your face of reality. And I think that September is, we'll call it the splash of cold water with reality <laughs> for a lot of markets. Uh, and I think especially from, uh, you know, and you take away from the Fed is, is that you look at the SEP forecast, the dot plots. And we're saying this is that no matter how much we thought that we would sort of say like the, uh, yeah, we're going to sort of see at the end of 2023, 24, we're going to see rates starting to come down and we're going to, we're going to quote unquote normalize and get back to lower rates. This is that the splash of cold water is, that's not going to happen. And and you say once that happens is, is that while the, uh, there's been a, you know, a 
decline in, in bond prices. We'll just sort of say that the long bond, I think, was up 40 basis points, you know, in terms of the yield curve. So we had a, a bear, uh, we, we got a, a bear rally in the back end of the curve. And so we're starting to get a steepening there. And you could sort of say that's, that's just be the splash of cold water that we're starting to hit reality. Uh, the other reality was this is that uh, I think earlier in the month, the Russell 2000 year to date was was negative. So take out all of the, the, the top 10 stocks in the S&P 500. You look at the rest of the stock market, you know, it's uh, it's not doing very well. And, you know, I, I always look at the S&P 500 versus the equally weighted index, because equally weighted is sort of like, that's a good representation of what the overall market is doing. It's a sort of more of a breath, easy breath index. And we'll sort of say that there's a huge divergence between those two. So, so if you sort of say like the average company return relative to the, the those uh large cap stocks that have been all concentrated in just a few names, uh, that, that there's such a divergence between the world of going on there. And then you look at even, you know, divergence between you've got metals, you know, year to date, they're probably down as a group. Energy is up. You got uh, agriculture is down, uh, but you got pre- precious metals being, uh, you know, sort of f- flattish. So, so there's much more divergence going on in markets. And so it's an ongoing theme. That we'll talk about it maybe a little bit later here in the podcast. Mm-hmm. This is that the idea of is that divergence. What is the impact of that on on trading? And uh, and we'll sort of say that there's more spread that we're seeing in markets than we have seen earlier in the year, and that's going to have an impact on on the set of opportunities. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and just talking about divergence, just talking about market moves. Maybe maybe not all our listeners follow markets as closely as as as, as we do. And I I we, I, don't, I don't we don't trade that at Don. Uh, but orange juice up ninety seven percent this year, right? Sugar up forty nine percent. Cocoa up thirty one percent. Nasdaq still up twenty nine percent. But then to the downside, you have nat gas down forty five percent, and uh, wheat down thirty six percent. Palladium down thirty one percent. I mean, there are some pretty big moves uh, in some of these commodities uh, year to date. Uh, so um, interesting times, to say the right. least. And this is the interesting part when you look at uh, we can, uh, and it's a recurring theme about narrative and quant models or whatever. But uh, it's sort of say like if you follow the narrative, let's let's look at wheat as a perfect example. Well, we still have war in Ukraine, Ukraine with Russia. We know that there have been, you know, on and off, the, there have been bombing of the grain export ports in uh, in in the Ukraine. We know that there have been on and off grain deals. This is it. And so, if someone said we still have war in the Ukraine, what do you think is going to happen for wheat? So, so you would come up with a strong narrative for why wheat prices should be the same or at least higher since the war began. And yet here we have a tremendous decline in wheat prices. So you say like, well, the narrative would give you a different one story. But then when you look at the model, if you follow just the trends in prices, you get a very different story or very different answer to the same question of what should happen to wheat. Investments are driven by narrative, but the narrative is often false. And this is what, and this is what a quant has to do. And uh, 
you know, I always sort of given ideas is that I was going to check the weather earlier today. So, and uh, when you look at, well, what's the weather forecast? You know, in some sense, it could be very, uh, it could vary cu- cut and dry. Here's what the here's what the temperature high and low is going to be. Is it going to be sunny or not? What's the pro- probability of uh, of rain? Okay. Uh, now, you know, I know in the United States is that they spend an inordinate amount of time on the weather forecast. <laughs> you know, in the in the in the news, and they probably do the same in in other parts of the country. This is that. They spent a lot of time just giving you a huge narrative about what what the weather would do, and all of the answer is is that is it going to be hot or cold, and is it going to be rainy or not? And those are the only things you really are interested in. But they'll spend a lot of time talking about the narrative to just uh, wrap around the forecast <laughs> and transferring that to our little world, Mark. I mean, really, uh, you have all these experts going on um, financial media talking about why they believe certain things happen, but if you ask a trend follower, well, the market is either going up or it's going down, frankly, and that's all that matters. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, good point. I will just run through. Uh, I don't have the final performance numbers for September because we still have one day. We're waiting for the numbers to come in on Monday. But as of Thursday night, um, good month for uh, the CTA world. Beat up 50, up 3.59%, up three and a quarter for the year. SOCGEN CT index up more than 4% as of Thursday uh, in September, up 25 for the year. SOCGEN trend index up 3.9% uh, for the month and up 1.44 for the year. And the short-term traders index had a good month, up 1.9%, um, but still down 1.55 for the year. MSCI World did finish the month of September down 4.45%, still up 96 for the year. And the World Government Bonds tough month down to more than two percent uh in september and the s p uh, s p 500 index down almost five percent in uh, september but still up 11.68 percent in 2023 all right mark we're kind of halfway through our conversation and it's time for you to Take us through some of your uh, wonderful uh, topics that you have uh, that you have listed and sent to me, and um, I'll try and keep up and do my best. But the first things you kind of already alluded to, we're going to talk about things. Um, you know, the more that they change, uh, the more they stay the same. So, uh, and that's a good place to start, uh, only because as you come to a month end, uh, I'm looking at like, well, what. Er- as soon as you get to the end of the third quarter, then people sort of say, "What's going to happen in the fourth quarter? What's what do you what do you see going on?" And uh, so we have uh, we've talked about we have uh, the auto worker strike. We've got oil price shocking. So it's, it's clearly that oil prices are, are in the nineties. We've got the shutdown in the federal government. We still got a debt crisis, and we're sort of seeing this is that you know delinquencies are, are are up for auto loans. We're sort of seeing real estate is having a problems. And then we've got the ongoing issue of just rates. Uh, rates going to be higher for longer. And uh, you know, we had a discussion earlier. You know, because we're, we're run quant models. This is that. Well, what should we do about this? You know, this, this is that. There are all of these events that are occurring. This is that. Should we? Should we be prepared 
to lower leverage for the fund, or should we sort of turn some things off? And, and that's why that, that initial phrase of changes are not permanent changes, you know, came to hide. So, so what do you do or when should you turn off models or sh- how should you make that decision was something that uh, has been bantering around with uh, myself and the partners. And generally we come to the conclusion is, is that no matter what we see in the marketplace, the null hypothesis should always be is that don't turn anything off. Is is that, that that you should be aware of what's going on. You should hold the course, okay? Uh, and then we should, because overrides are costly. So costly in the sense is that first is, is that you're making a prediction. You're saying the prediction is, is that you know, market will do X or, or do something else. And if you're wrong, then that could have an impact on overall performance. And then you have to make a second decision of when do you get back in? So if you cut leverage or if you turn off a model or if you turn something off in a strategy, well, then you have to also look at when do you get back in? So we'll always sort of say that, you know, not unless that there's a liquidity event that impairs your ability to actually trade is that you always sort of hold study or, or make sure you hold the models. And, uh, you know, that should be the fundamental view for all the quants is, is that, and, and the reason why I could have confidence doing that is, is that how you do back tests. So you want to try to do back tests as long as possible. Now, I think some managers have very, very long history, so they could look at actual live performance. But you want to sort of say, if you've done a back test, you want to say, I have environments where I don't know if this specific event like this type of strike has occurred, but I know that there have been disruptions and my model has included that. And I could either sort of look at what those disruptions, what happened during those periods of time, or I could just sort of say, here's what the worst periods have been. And I could sort of say that, and I and I could still live with that. Well, then I just try to move forward. But, but I think that... Uh, this is a constant battle that most people in the quant world have to deal with is, are there situations to turn things off? And we'll sort of say that there should be very limited. Or So if you say that a doctor said, first, do no harm. So for a quant, first, do not, do not turn off the model. So what you find out is, is that when you have a lot of uncertainty, it actually generates slower behavior. And one of the things I was looking at is there's something called a Rogers diffusion in, uh, curve. And the Rogers diffusion curve, if you look at a bell curve, that there's a speed of adapt, uh, adoption for different technology. But you could sort of say the same thing happens with themes in the marketplace or information, that there's a speed of adjustment. And that it, sometimes this is that adjustments can be very quick Sometimes they could be slow, and what we'll sort of say if there's more uncertainty than uh, or fluctuations in the market that that throws up you know sort of bargains and it causes people to miss seeing value. And so, so when we think about the diffusion curve and uh, and innovation, well, you get an unemployment number comes out. Well, there might be a reaction right away. So the diffusion of that information and, and reaction is very fast. But if you say like oil price shocks, well, what's the diffusion rate for uh, an oil price shock? 
it might take a while before it works out. And, and so consequently, that's going to lead to, you know, slower adjustment in prices. And that's going to lead to, you know, sometimes better opportunities. Okay. Uh, a rate increase, you know, we've gone from zero to five and a half percent, you know, on, on rates. This is that, uh, you think of there, there's a diffusion, uh, index or a diffusion curve for the idea of higher rates. And in some sense, we'll sort of say it's taking a little bit longer, but that still means that there's you're going to be more opportunities going for, uh, forward as the market starts to react to the fact that, well, rates are going to be higher for longer, and now this is impacting my ability to lever. It impacts my ability to borrow, and it impacts my ability to, in some cases, if I have a variable rate loan, to pay back the loan. So in some sense, let's go back to, and, and I always sort of say, let's go back to first principles for trend following or other models. This is that we've talked on the podcast before. This is that uh, I'd like to say that uh, myself, you know, Andrew Bruner and Pete Wild as, uh, as our, our theme team is that we focus on change point detection. Okay, We're looking for change points in markets and change points can come in two form. They can either be you know, uh, uh, an opportunity for reversal, but if there's no change, then you're probably gonna be trend. And we'll sort of say that because a lot of the storm clouds we've seen have actually sort of have a longer term effect we may be in the fourth quarter going forward and more in a divergent world. We're going to be in a period where there could be more opportunities for more dispersion in returns and more dispersions in, in behavior. So, so I think that that's going to be uh, the positive sign for the fourth quarter if you're a trend follower or if you're someone who's looking for divergence in marketplaces. And we can already see that in, in let's say, sector returns. You know, you sort of say like, you know, the overall market is looking a little flat, but at the same time, this is, is that communication services and as an equity sector is up like 40%, okay? Uh, you've got real estate and utilities, you know, down, real estate is down five plus, you know, utilities, you know, over 14%. So there's actually a big divergence between different sectors in the marketplace. And the issue is that that always can't happen forever. So what you're going to see is, is that there's going to be opportunities as markets sort of like uh, move from high divergence to smaller divergence. And in some cases for other markets, they're going to go from low divergence to higher uh, divergence or higher dispersion. And so when we talked about the return pattern that we've seen, you have energy it has some great opportunities. That's a great opportunity for trend following, but we also know that that's going to have an impact on other sectors that have, uh, and that could be in an opposite direction. The cost of energy goes up, well, the cost of mining goes up, the cost of agriculture, farming goes up. It may not have an impact in the near term, but eventually that's going to have a stronger impact on on the overall, uh, you know, pricing across markets. So, uh, so we're we're seeing that th that this is a good opportunity, but. At the same time, we'll sort of say that uh, while we look at these short-term uh, storm clouds, and that would be, for example, a strike or a government shutdown, we're still haven't really in internalized all of the worst cloud. 
which is the rate increase. This is that in some sense is that there's still speculative excesses in the marketplace. And from a trend perspective, and from a, a, a bigger macro perspective of where are the opportunities, this is that we still have a bubble economy, and we're still going to and we're and we're going to see that this is a, as uh, credit becomes more expensive, then we're going to see that that's going to have an impact on any market's ability to maintain a bubble. So, look at this: is that housing? You know, housing is starting to finally turnover around the world. So, so uh, housing prices now, now the, the issue is, is that we would have a worse housing crisis, in, especially in the United States, if it wasn't for the fact that many people have such low mortgage rates because they locked them in at the, at the lows that they can't afford to move or can't afford to sell their home and go somewhere else. But if you look at new homes, the prices are coming down. So, so there's adjustment of the housing bubble. We'll say you know, uh, the goods bubble from the pandemic, you know, has led to inflation. We're seeing that come down. We're looking at the rates bubble that occurred. Uh, is in now we're sort of saying this is that uh, we're getting to a new permanent high in interest rates. And in particular, is is that, you know, you more in, in Europe relative to the United States, you know, Niels, can you remember that there used to be negative interest rates in, in Europe and other parts of the world? <laughs> you know what's funny about that particular uh, part is, of course, that um, I think the last, uh, let's call it 15 years or so, in, in many ways have been very uh, illustrative in the quote-unquote strength strength of trend following, the strength of, of not predicting anything because... Uh, as I'm sure others will remember, uh, there were certainly a, a long period of time where, and I use this as a general term, but I think investors started to believe that clearly rates couldn't go below a certain level, whether that was 2% or 1%, whatever. But as you rightly say, it, it turned out that actually they could go negative. And I think that kind of um, you know rules-based discipline approach where you just don't make any prediction Actually, was a very good example of of the of of the benefit of that. Even though CTAs were most likely criticized for, well, they're just making all their money in fixed income, and we did, but we did it because we had to. That was the rule. And now you can say, well, actually, we've we've seen the complete reversal uh, here, where uh, lots of people uh, and 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 experts in particular refuse to think that interest rates could go as high as they did at the at the speed they did. But once again, trend followers probably for the most part have been short fixed income markets for uh, the better part of two years now, even if we've had a few wobbles along the way and, and a big one in March. So to me, I think there's so many good examples of of the, the benefit of having a diversification of investment process, uh, not just diversification across markets. And, and maybe that's what we will see more and more investors uh, realize uh, as time goes by and as they seem to uh, realize now the the uh, the fixed income markets that bond yields might actually continue to go higher and I've, I haven't said this for a while but I still believe that we've lost our imagination of what can happen so we need to start imagining the unimaginable and I think we've seen quite a few things already in that you know like 
negative interest rates, uh, negative oil prices, uh, short-term interest rates going up by 5% in, in 15 months, and so on and so forth. That, I think, to many people is the unimaginable. But I worry that this is just the beginning. And I think, and I don't, I didn't read the article, but I saw some headlines where Jamie Dimon was out saying, well, is the world ready for 7% Fed funds? And uh, I don't think it is. I don't think he believes it is. But what if it's not 7? What if it's 10? I mean, the thing is, it's almost like we know how this will play out. But the truth is, we don't know how this will play out. So, and, um, so much, so many surprises in the coming period, whether it's the next five or 10 years, but I don't think it's going to be more, uh, more calm, unfortunately. You know, the, uh, when we talk about negative interest rates, I'll ad- admit to all of your audience that was my one, uh, one of my days of infamy. Uh, you know, I was with, uh, John Henry, and we were talking about whether, you know, what we should do, interest rates were going low at the time when I was working with him. And I, and I said, like, well, rates can, ne- they can never go negative. I said, yeah, there was like some structural issues that it went negative for a few days. But I said, like, it's not going to happen. And, uh, and, and, I, and it was like one of those places he was saying, it's like, well, yeah, it could happen. You know, it's possible. And, and it was one of those things, this is that, like, that's always stuck in my head. You know, from you know, we're having this argument about whether rates could go negative, and then you know, darn it, if it goes negative big time. You know, in many markets, and I sort of said, like, yeah, you know, he was right, and I probably didn't have the right emotion, and that gets back to, what do you do about markets and overriding? What do you do? Is is that uh, is that there are worlds we can't imagine for different assets? that could occur that as trend followers, you have to be prepared for, okay? And that's uh, that's the same as is that also on reversals, is that if you're looking for any kind of change, is that there are changes that will occur that we're not prepared for, that you have to allow the imagination to take hold for. And uh, and so, so I think that the, the rate environment is, is, a, is a perfect one, is, is that there's a, you know the the term premium, which would be the uh, with the New York Fed, you know, has a nice website that shows what the term premium across the yield curve is, which would be like what's the excess return that you should have for holding duration. It was, it was negative for a very long time, and so you know you never sort of say like I'm going to have a negative term premium for taking on duration risk. It happened. Is it now? It's kind of go positive. So so you can never say never. So you always have to be prepared for those. And so you have to, if you can't have the imagination, then you have to at least allow your models to be able to have the possibility for some things that you have not explored in your own mind. All right, Mark, where do you want to go next? Uh, I'm not sure we're going to get to all of the topics that you listed, but maybe um, a few more. Well, where do you want to go focus? Let me talk about 
two things that uh, that you know sort of catch my eye, and always in terms of research, there's a little little bit of uh, you know things that are uh, that I found interesting. And then let me let me just talk about some of the research that I'm working on currently because I think that uh, I could always come back with that later on as or I get more results. But then at least sort of give uh, maybe listeners a chance to sort of say like, okay, here's what. You know, there's sometimes the view is 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 that that you know we have our models and we keep them in place and we don't change. And I think that a lot of you know quants are very dynamic. They're always looking at a feedback loop. They're always trying to sort of say, can you improve? Others don't. But I would sort of say that you know, uh, at least my approach is to say that I always got to be learning. I got to be thinking about like how can I improve a model or what can I do next for the next model. So. Let's start with, you know, first the two things that I found sort of interesting in these are uh, just little psychological studies because I think psychology has such an impact on markets. And part of a model is to take out the emotions or actually, you know, uh, quantify the emotions. And so one is, is that they, there's a study that looked at countercyclical risk aversion. And they said that if you prime you know, uh, professionals. So they did a survey of professionals, you know, financial professionals that you're in a boom period with positive stories. And then you show them, let's say a, a graph of what could be the potential return for a asset that they'll actually take on more risk. So if they think that they're in a boom period, they'll take on more risk. And lo and behold, this is that if you prime them with pessimistic news or the idea that we might have a recession, they actually cut their risk. Okay, so the risk aversion is 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 very counter cyclical, but based on what the priming of what the news they read or how they look at it, that will have an impact on the, on the sizing of positions that you take, which which I found is really interesting. Now, modelers in their model, we don't sort of say prime on the news, so we don't have this counter cyclical risk aversion because. We just say, here's the kind of size you'll take if this is the opportunity or the count or the signal size. So so you get more extremes. So if let's say we're in a period when now we're going to hit more uh, news that is negative, then we're going to see that there's going to be, you know, risk size are going to be taken down in, in positions. And so that's going to have a certain overall impact on behavior. The second is that study that was I found that was really interesting, and some of these haven't been done recently. It's just that I uncovered them. This is that that there's a big difference between whether you know a trader believes or sort of sees that it's there are realized returns or unrealized returns. If let's say that you have an unrealized loss, that that you don't react as strongly as if the loss is realized. If the loss is realized, you, you're going to actually cut back your risk. You're going to sort of become more conservative if it's realized. If it's mark to market, it's unrealized, you don't react as strong. Now, from an economist's point of view, you'd say it doesn't matter whether it's realized or unrealized, you know, and, and especially in a futures market, you mark to market every day. So you should be, whether, whether you happen to realize the loss or not, there's a loss if let's say it's get marked every day. So I should be, my reaction should be the same. And the research tells us that people sort of react differently versus realized and unrealized as loss. So again, you know, the emotions that people have in their trading wouldn't be displayed in a model, 
which, which again, is, is that I always sort of say that's the reason why you want to try to go with models. So, uh, now I'm not yeah, going it, to. It, it almost touches on. I was. I don't know if you were just about to say it, but but obviously we do have some very close friends uh, that has this very different way of managing risk where they look at open and closed profit separately. Um, but of course, open profit could also be an open loss. It doesn't have to be a profit. But uh, yeah, I wasn't. Um, I wasn't sure whether you dared go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> well, this is a this is actually a, a good uh, topic for further exploration for other people to sort of say, like, uh, I wasn't going down that path, but that that actually is it matters. Is is it uh, okay? Yes. This is that. Do you play with the house money or not? In terms of, is it like okay? If I if I've got uh, you know open trade profits, should I be uh, should I should I you know use that to lever up more? Or do I sort of say, no, you know, I'm not going to play with the house money. So, uh, but that's an ongoing issue of how you build models. So, so there's the psychology, and then there's the model building <laughs> issue, which, which I think is uh, adds another complexity. And also, sometimes I use the word it adds complexity to models. Is also adds personality to models. So I think that you know, the audience may not always realize that. Every model is not dispassionate. Every model has a personality. There is a personality associated with the model builder that's embedded in what, what they do. Now, you could say it's very rules-based. You could sort of say that it's, it's unemotional, but a model has personality. <laughs> so, so, so what am I working on? And I guess, and that's might be a good place to sort of end is just some of the topics. So, so the one thing my, my partners and I, we spent a lot of time, we're looking at uh, dispersion and correlation because, you know, we'll, we trade a lot of markets. We'll trade, you know, the individual stocks in the S&P, the Russell 2000. And so we spent a lot of time is this, that, that, you know, what is, uh, what is the opportunity set? And if there's more dispersion in markets, then that should lead to more opportunities, right? And this applies even if you look in the commodities markets. This is that that there are periods of more dispersion should give you greater, you know, return opportunities. And then when there's less dispersion or dispersion is very low, then it doesn't matter whether you have a trend following model or 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 whatever type of model. If there's low dispersion, then the opportunity set is going to be smaller. You're not going to get as much uh, return, you know, potential. But can I can I challenge that a little bit? Uh, maybe and I'm, I could be completely wrong here, Mark, but. You, 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 we are right in saying this thing about well, we in one way we want markets not just to move. We ideally we want them to be divergent, and that's a good environment for trend followers, for example. But you could equally say that when, and I think maybe you could say that that's a good environment for trend followers, where there are opportunities and but where the portfolio doesn't get too risky, so to speak. Because I actually think we make. A lot of our money, uh, frankly, when there is concentration. So there are a couple of themes that drives, and you could say the correlation risk might be high because suddenly things can change. But as long as that train is running, that's where we're going to make a lot of money, like last year where there were just a couple of themes and so on and so forth. So I think it's always a balance of how do we manage more 
dispersed periods of time and how do we manage periods where the portfolio has more conviction uh, and I'm I don't I don't know that uh, that it's the dispersed periods that has that are the most profitable but they may be more low risk and profitable so well, you hit on the, the, the problem itself because okay. uh, so so in fact this is a you know I I could make these you know especially on a podcast you can make bro- a broad generalization this is that like well we want more dispersion but then you say like the devil is always in the details and the detail for example in, in terms of why this is an important research issue is this is that I always say the dirty secret for trend following is is that yes we like to have uh, diversified markets. But we make our most money when correlations are high, when a lot of markets start moving all in the same direction or all have, they're reacting to the same common theme. So, so when you have high correlation across markets, then that usually means that there's a common factor that's driving them. And so that's one environment. Uh, so there you have less diversification. You have higher correlation, but then you have a common factor. And so you're trying to exploit that. Other times you're saying is that, well, I want diversification because I want to have one market going in one direction, another going in a different direction, and they're not correlated. That's great. But sometimes that doesn't work because you could have, like, I'm making money in one market, I'm losing money in another, and it sort of cancels things out. And then there's also the transition is, is that if I've had high correlation, or uh, you know, I have high dispersion, that usually doesn't last. And when the dispersion across markets starts to collapse or starts to decline, well then that's you know a period for you know, we'll call it mean reversion or reversals. So that's a different type of market. So so when I have low dispersion, then and at below normal. I expect it to, you know, explode out. Well, then that's a more divergent environment. When I have high dispersion, I expect that that should collapse to the mean. That's going to be more mean reverting. So correlations could be high across markets. Well, that could be a great environment because if I get it right, I'm going to make a lot of money. But if correlations so are low, it could be a different environment. So how do you deal with that, Mark? Well, you're just going to have to invite me back again to, to okay. give you some answers. So, so, okay. uh, and and that's uh, that's why you know when we've talked about to you know I, I spend time on this change point detection because we say like how can we sort of look at different environments and look at what's the likelihood of different types of changes. So, so that's what we're trying to sort of. You know, I think we we so, solve some so, of it. Okay. So, so just maybe for my understanding here, so are you suggesting that one of the things you guys are trying to do is to kind of determine whether which periods you want to be a trend follower and which periods you want to be kind of a, a mean reversion, uh, sort of a contrarian type right. trader? Uh, and that's what we've, uh, well, we like to sort of say that there are change points. Those change points is, could be like a trend environment, or let's say if there's no change, then we could sort of say then mark is trend because there's no change, so a market in motion will stay in motion. And then there are other periods where markets might get overextended, so they're at an extreme, and those will be pe- periods of reversal. So so can you figure out, uh, and as sort of the core problem of always we're trying to work at, and we do it. 
I think we're doing it a good job. You always want to do a better job. Is is that can you sort of say can you identify those p- periods when maybe markets are more at an extreme, and so there's more of a likelihood that there's a reversal. It doesn't mean that it's going to happen with certainty, but you want to sort of say, I always sort of say, like, don't tell me the narrative, tell me the count. So if certain conditions happen, what's the probability or likelihood that there could be a reversal? What's the likelihood that it's going to continue to trend? And so that's what we're trying to sort of, that's the overall issue that we're trying to sort of face and get to. So, so is this that for a trend follower, every time you're looking for it is you're trying to say, uh, it's like for, uh, you know, for a man with a hammer, he's always looking for nails. If you're a trend follower, you're always looking for trends. If you're a mean reverting guy, you're always looking for mean reversion. So in some sense, those are special cases of the more general case of what is a change point. So either a change point exists or it doesn't exist. So, you know, how do we sort of actually sort of measure those periods of whether there's change or no change? Yeah, we'll definitely have to continue that another time. That's a big topic because I think that's one of the things that as an industry we've always struggled with. And we keep saying to people, well, you need to have a co-allocation to trend following because you never know when the trends occur. So trying to predict when to be a trend follower and not to be a trend follower is an interesting topic. I'd love to explore that. Uh, I've not seen many people be successful at it, but doesn't mean that you can't be. So uh, we need to dig a little bit deeper here, Mark, to find out how how we can do these things. So uh, so we'll we'll so, do that next time you're so, on. So the uh, and with that, we're, we're tie that into we'll call it the regime environment. So you mm-hmm. know when we, yeah. we spent you know um, earlier we sort of said like well there are a lot of clouds and so then you you might be saying something about. Uh, you know, in a narrative sense, I'm, I'm suggesting that there's going to be a change in regime. And when you think about it, even for all types of hedge fund strategies, uh, you know, most people will look at this as an unconditional forecast. So I just look at an entire backtest. I sort of see what works, what doesn't work. And then I sort of say, then I'll just apply it to all cases. I'm oversimplifying. But in some sense, the, the holy grail is to say, like, what happens if I condition on the environment? Is there things that I could sort of say about what kind of regime I am in? And if I'm in a different regime, do I sort of skew more of my risk to certain types of markets? Do I skew some of my risk to the long side versus the short side? So now, you know, in some sense, there's, uh, we talked about a lack of imagination. For this, from a, from a, quant perspective. It's not made out a lack of imagination, maybe a lack of data to sort of say, I have to have enough regimes, environments, the count. So I could be able to say that here's actually has a meaningful probability of it occurring. And that's actually quite an interesting point you make, because um, I think a lot of um, strategies that have come, I mean, you we mentioned multi-strat, right? Multistrat is incredibly popular with uh, many institutional investors, but let's be frank, that strategy has never traded in a high interest rate environment before. All the data is from the last 20 years where interest rates were low. Uh, And there's probably a few other strategies like that. So this is interesting, and I think trend following has uh, certainly an advantage in uh, the fact that there are managers out there, of course I work for one of them, that have traded through many different environments because their track records are so long 
And that's very unique. And I think it's underappreciated by folks because they just look at the fact that, oh, yeah, when you have a long track, your shop might not be as good as if you only had a five-year track and so on and so forth. Yeah, true. But the fact that you're in business after 50 years, uh, that should mean something, um, so to speak. Anyways, lots of good stuff to talk about, Mike. I, I was going to say that uh, that a lot of the newer strategies and the new techniques is, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis often talked about chronological snobbery and and that the, that the new should always be throw out the old and, and so in some sense if like a, if you're a seasoned veteran well then we're going to put you on the bench because you know our chronological snobbery says that the new strategy the new technique is is the way to go relative to all others so but but this well you know, i think we're being conditioned of that every quarter or every year when all these new gadgets come out i mean iphone 15 should be better than iphone 14 you would think right but it doesn't doesn't necessarily mean that um a one year old um strategy is better than a 50 year old strategy so uh, as you rightly point out as, as i get older i'm more acutely aware of chronological snobbery <laughs> so, <laughs> fair enough so so fair with enough. that probably a, 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 that might be a good place to stop is <laughs> yes yes no absolutely and 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 actually it's um i want to make just a, one important uh, announcement because uh, i did mention it last week when Alison was on um, because I will be uh, getting a little bit of a break from the uh, weekly uh, conversations on the Systematic in uh, series because I'm going traveling. So Alan has very kindly uh, said that he will be happy to host the next three weeks um, while I'm on the road. So I'm sure Alan and uh, our usual amazing co-host will be tackling some really interesting topics. Maybe they have completely different opinions about these topics that we have been discussing. Mark, we'll find out in the next few weeks uh, and obviously, I hope everyone will um, tune in as usual and uh, give you give us your feedback, your comments, rating and reviews, as you are so kind uh, to do uh, every single week. So from Mark and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week, although it will be Alan at the helm. And until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor podcast series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.